want a rumor requirement. We're changing everything up. We've we heard we heard you wanted us to do new shit, so we're doing new shit. So the way I think it will work, at least for the next few episodes, is that we will pick a single topic, and we will have uh, it moderated by one person, and then uh, discussed by the other two. Yeah, we're gonna have like a round robin series of debates here, <laughs> while while the, the policy discussion. Yeah, policy discussion. <laughs> sure, you know, uh, while the uh, while we're in this interim period before between uh, the announcement of the candidates for office and when they actually start debating, we figure it's a good idea to you know everybody to think about the issues as much as they possibly can, right? Uh, at yeah. a in a granular level, right? For this episode, uh, I Kamala Shrao will be. Your moderator, and I will be joined by uh, Miracle Jones and Alexis Wright. And uh, we decided that the discussion would be about the Green New Deal, which is inc- incredibly apropos, since effectively it w- the Republicans managed to troll the debate by holding a vote on it, uh, for which uh, no one actually voted for. So. Right. I think it's actually symbolically, symbolically, not necessarily because they were for it or against it, just right. because they were against the uh, vote itself. Sure. Parliamentary uh, procedure. <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Parliamentary procedure. The last refuge of scoundrels. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to talk a little bit about Green New Deal, whether or not it actually made it anywhere in the Congress, because I think it's a really effective way to talk about what the left's view of environmental policy should be like. And I think we're going to have two very different views on that. Uh, uh, I wanted to open up with maybe starting what you think the definition of the Green New Deal was, or perhaps we can start with agreeing to what we think the actual policy scope was. So the Green New Deal, in its uh, its actual laundry list of things that it wants, is, is basically just the extreme left position of everything in the Democratic Party. The, not not just environmental policy, but labor policy, health care, uh, everything, right? There's no... And the, the idea of the Green New Deal is that it's all tied together with environmental policy. That's like the, the glue, I suppose, that brings all these things in. Like, if we don't do all this stuff, then we will not be able to effectively, you know, run our country so that we lower emissions and thereby save the planet, right? It's attempting to wrangle economics into the environment. Uh, so it's not environmental policy. It's not economic policy, but it's it's everything together. It's kind of saying the only way we save the, save the world is if by following democratic policy initiatives. Uh, if I want to... I wanna pull back on that just a little to say the Green New Deal is effectively a way of marrying various initiatives yeah. from uh, a extreme version of what carbon emission reduction would look like. I think they wanted to get to a net zero carbon emission by 2050, along with a jobs uh, program from the federal government, a federal jobs guarantee. Right, a federal jobs guarantee. That That is the great... I mean, no one's ever... Right, uh, but also as <laughs> a, a way of uh, addressing things like social justice right. uh, and inequality. Sure. So all of these are, are it is sort well, of a also grab- free education and free, free education. and universal health care. 
Universal Health. So yeah. am I am I good to jump right. in? Right. Right. So I just wanted to pull back and say, give it a, 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 a subscribe uh, definition. All right, Alexis, do you have uh, how do, would you like us to think about either the Green New Deal or environmental policy? So um, backing up a little bit in terms of what Miracle Jones just unpacked on the Green New Deal, in which he essentially said that it was a policy marrying all of the far left priorities in terms of the Democratic Party policy. It's not a policy at all, right? <laughs> it's House Resolution 109 of the current yeah. congressional term. House Resolution 108 of the current congressional term expressed support for the designation of July 12th as Collector Car Appreciation <laughs> Day. <laughs> so this is not exactly binding policy, no, right? Of so, not. But what right. we are looking at is this is a platform <laughs> which we would like to establish um, one, as a starting point for creating congressional committees with subpoena and deposition ability, right, in order to be able to effectively move forward on climate policy. Two, we're moving the Overton window, right? Right now, people are treating environmental policy like it is not an imminent threat, even though it certainly is on the same timeline as many other things that we consider a little more seriously, right? And so there's also obviously a lot more in there, right? It's Medicare for all, jobs guarantee. Now, to evaluate all of that at once is to evaluate the entire Democratic Party and every opinion that it holds. Yeah, currently. especially the far left. Yeah, 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 yeah well, particularly the far left of the Democratic Party. But well, let me take this back a little bit, just because like the extent to which it is a set of policies or a policy is the name, right? So Green New Deal harkens back to the New Deal itself, and it it, it it's the Democratic Party's like way of introducing legislation or creating policies, creating a name for a host of new policies that will transform the entire society, from, whether it's the Great Society or the Square Deal or the Fair right. Deal, right? So we've got we've got a, a whole history or lineage of this kind of thing happening, <laughs> right? right? I, yes, deal is very popular. Yeah. I Actually, I want to push back on you, Alexis, but I think it actually is a set of policy prescriptions, right? Like, I mean, I think that's, there is a certain, it, it is somewhere between it's uh, a set of policy goals. Yeah, goals, right. right. I think that's and better. Can, to and talk you can about and it, you yes. can tab down into each one to see like you know really specific policy you know initiatives by somebody else, not necessarily. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean you could dig down yeah. into each of the positions espoused in the Green New Deal and find something that some think tank has produced, yeah. which says that it will achieve that end. Right. Great. So I'm not saying that there's no associated policy. What I'm saying is that the Green New Deal itself. The way that you see it discussed currently yeah. is as though it were some kind of fully fleshed out policy, like what's the price tag of the Green New Deal? That's almost a meaningless question at the current phase right. of development that it's yeah, in, it's, right? Yeah, it, that's I, insane to and, worry about. And I would say in terms of the naming around it, I really think, to me, what's effective about the phrasing Green New Deal is that uh, I think that most people have very short historical memory, are not particularly historically educated, and have a recency bias in terms of assuming that the way that they've seen politics unfold in their lifetimes is the way that politics has always been and must always be. And so I think that the reminder that the New Deal happened at all and was famous and everyone's heard of it yeah. is, I think does harken back to this idea that government can do large things. Though most of the things people associate with the New Deal actually happened during the Great Society. That right. <laughs> right. <laughs> all right, so I think we're all in agreement that if it's not exactly a policy, it is a way of staking out some policy ideas about where environmentalism can intersect with the economy and, yeah. and a number of other, say, uh, 
tropes or, or uh, aims that are, are, are popular within the left and especially on the far left. So I want to ask both of you in turn, what do you think a good environmental policy, just focusing on the environmental part of the policy, what should that look like, Alexis? So um, the environmental policy is my favorite part of the Green New Deal. I'm actually, <laughs> I know, for all that it's extremely ambitious, it is extremely ambitious in a way that seems to me to be necessary in terms of foresight. Um, and it, if not perfectly realistic, certainly realistic as a goal, if we assume that maybe our efforts are not always going to hit our goals, um, we might as well have ambitious ones. And so I think the idea of moving purely to cleaner renewable energy over the next, what is it, like decade was the goal? Yeah, I think they wanted to move over a decade. I think the the goal that they were shooting for was by 2050 to have net zero carbon emissions. Net zero carbon yeah. emissions, yeah. Which seems, that seems, I mean, a little bit ambitious to me, but who knows what will happen technologically in that time. That being said, the idea of build out of high-speed rail, right, um, and of more efficient transportation technology, right, which is a big emitter, I think is appropriate, necessary, and an obvious next step, regardless of what happens. So that's my view. Okay. Miracle Jones, so what, what, same question to you. Here's <laughs> what do you think? Well, here's, the, here's the interesting stat, right? We've spent more on Afghanistan than we have the entire Marshall Plan, right? Uh, and got nothing for it. And the amount of money we've spent on Afghanistan, we could have built high-speed rail in the United States, linking every major city, right? Uh, I, I don't know if it's the best use of that money, but it's something we could have done. If it's if it's in the green... You know, it's, all this is paid for on a credit card. You know, it's, it's not money that we have. We just decided it was in the interests of America to spend money on Afghanistan. Okay, but so I think you're dancing around the question. Well, what do you think? think? Well, right, so... <laughs> So my point, my point here is that, you know, the military is where the money goes in, in America, right? And until you, as far as environmental policy, as far as the discretionary spending goes, uh, military adventures seem to be where we spend most of our money. And furthermore, the military is the greatest polluter on the planet, right? So most of the missions come from the United States military because they've, they've used the most petroleum products, uh, aircraft carriers usually it's mainly the navy so we're looking at these are yeah, yeah. I, I i'm not sure if I, I i don't know if i agree with can that we, can we get a citation for that in post yeah so, <laughs> well, I mean, all right so what are you so again what are you arguing should be well i'm arguing that we're we are paying lots of money to pollute for no reason so it's it's irrational the way in which we our military should be restructured we need to uh move away from having a, a massive kind of useless navy uh, and move a lot of that into cyber defense and infrastructure uh, and, and, and intelligence and, and space and, uh, you know, move away from having a massive standing army as well. Your argument is that we should need to, uh, proper environmental policy is that we redress how we yeah, an deal with them that, that necessarily takes into consideration our our military affairs, our military budget, how we how we spend on military. I I think that's actually I think you're bundling your 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 military affairs agenda into a green deal, not unlike how uh, the green new deal is, is bundling in say social. Well, right, justice. but I mean it's the same 
I mean, because if we're looking at the stats, like if the U.S. military is the number one polluter in the United States, no, I, then but I mean, so uh, we we perhaps. can't we can't control Chinese coal emissions. We can't control the United States military's okay, emissions. Right, okay, oh, sorry. Right. Uh, it's way easier to control the United States military's emissions, which is a federal program, than it is to institute on a you know wide confiscatorial platform okay. like the, the entire restructuring of the United States job market. Okay, uh, Alexis, I mean that's so, something that so the let's... that the president can theoretically do with an executive order. Okay, so Alexis, do you agree with this that the most effective way to deal with our environmental problems is to deal with the military first, or do you have other proposals that you think are more important? So or what, I, would you, what would be your target proposals? So, I mean, my response to that would be that the umbrella of the policy that I just advocated for, which is what's included in the Green New Deal, must necessarily include the military since the goal is to have right, like zero emissions by whatever the target date is, right? Um, and so if the military is in fact our largest CO2 emitter in terms of, you know, fossil fuel burn or coal use or whatnot, then um, we would have to include it in what I've already proposed anyway. So it seems like Miracle Jones is proposing a more moderate environmental solution combined with a differently focused job solution? Well, politics is the art of the possible, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I think the whole point of the policy is that we can change what we view as possible at any time. Perhaps, right, but that doesn't necessarily mean it makes it more gettable, right? Like, yeah, achievable, yeah, yeah. right. Well, so, I mean, I think, I think, and you mentioned this, like, that the Green New Deal is a way of restaking the uh, limits of the debate and moving it to the left. Do you have policies that you are in particular favor for? What are your favorite policies? And if, say, you had to give X amount, what do you think are the most promising? Um, so I'm actually going to touch back on, and this is not explicitly included again in the Green New Deal because it's not a policy document, but the idea of where the phrasing Green New Deal came from in the first place was this idea that we could get sort of rural America on board with what we're moving forward toward as we move toward a more green agenda so that people who have been involved historically in like the coal industry, for example, are kept on board and moved in the direction of greater prosperity. And I think that in terms of policy, you know, regardless of whether or not we're able to achieve a federal jobs guarantee, I do think that or whether we're able to achieve a federal education guarantee. I mean, what I would like to see um, personally in terms of policy would be, I think it would, one a big thing that we could do would be a federal vocational education guarantee in the areas of technology relevant to green energy. I think example. that's what they, they actually proposed something along those lines. Yeah. So they were talking, uh, there was a policy that would be required that the federal government would have to provide training. Yeah, because I mean, and and just as someone who happens to know people who have taken advantage of actual training related policy outcomes in terms of like retraining from whatever from job loss and, and stuff, um, I think that it's something that gives people a real chance to get ahead. And if you direct it correctly, you can move the economy and environmental policy in the right direction. Oh, that's a policy. I mean, if you, if I don't know if we're looking for an exhaustive list, but no, 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 no. I, that, that's a, a no. It's a strong argument. So, Miracle Jones, how how do you think we should go about achieving our environmental goals along, and how in the way that 
takes into consideration the effects on of uh, the economy or employment. So what is that balance, and where do you think we should strike it? Because you consider yourself a humanist first and foremost, and you're oh no, yeah, for sure. Like I mean, you're somewhat skeptical about inv- a lot of environmental. Well, I mean, I I believe in I believe that the planet is you know undergoing catastrophic climate change, and I believe that we are uh, responsible for it. What I'm dubious about is our ability to reverse that, being is that human nature is to terraform its habitat and maximize resources in order to, you know, feed itself and reproduce. Uh, that I mean, I don't, I don't think we're distinct from the environment. I think we're like bees or beavers or, you know, uh, dolphins. Uh, I'm, I'm very proud of what human beings have been able to accomplish on planet Earth. Uh, and in some ways, like, massive climate change is uh, is one of our you know it's 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 something you can see from space right it, it is the light <laughs> we have turned on for Wait, are you seriously arguing that climate <laughs> is testimony to what? like mankind's greatness yeah i mean it's oh, not yeah. it's it's a problem <laughs> it's a problem that we've created but it's a you know it, it, the way that it's talked about is is, is in apocalyptic terms right as if humanity because of its greed and like hubris has like done all this you know uh horrible shit to the planet that didn't need to happen right that was you know there was other options right there was some other way to feed everybody or to you know to uh make the world livable make things that we wanted that you know delighted and, and and uh made all of our lives better uh and i don't think i don't think it's possible i think climate change is an inevitable result of the human spirit right it is where we were always going to go we always hurt our environment or change it anyway so the question here now is is more you know how do we create a sustainable you know planet how do we live in harmony more now that we have the satellites in space that required massive expenditures and uh fossil fuels and uh technological advancement to achieve now we can actually see climate change wouldn't be possible without the satellites so now that we know that it's happening as a result of you know it took a massive you know uh it took climate change itself to make us aware of climate change right it took all the 20th century putting these you know uh uh analytics in in space to be able to to show us what we've got so we wouldn't even know about the problem if it wasn't for climate change in the first place which is a paradox but i I think it's an important one to think about because if we're talking about this as like a metaphysical thing like we're you know uh it, it is an inevitability that things are going to collapse as a result of what we've done uh then that is a tragedy but it's a human tragedy and if there's a way out of it i think i think there probably is i think we'll be able to think our way out of it or uh you know human our way out of it somehow but it won't be a result of not doing things of people abstaining of puritanism of giving up stuff it'll be a result of people choosing to do stuff to it'd be active solutions to make new things to make more interesting things to make uh using more of the budget on technology as opposed to war uh it, the the idea of the green new deal in its uh, or climate change itself the, the possibility of it is that we're all linked up in this like you know hell struggle together and if we were to you know start taking our budgets away from uh 
killing machines, which are, we're not even using. You know, we can't. Okay. We can't use nuclear weapons. So why don't we spend some of that money on clean energy? Right. Okay. So I, Alex, I want to pose it to you. Um, so I guess the question is, uh, when you're talking, thinking about policies that you think would be effective, how do you effectively tackle a problem that is global with national policies, right? right? And so one of the hardest things I think about thinking about it from a U.S. perspective is that the polluters, uh, the number one, two, three polluters are in places like India or China, uh, have a little, you know, countries that have, uh, you know, large populations heavily relying on coal for their energy needs or maybe even oil. How do you, how do you address that, right? That's an interesting question. So do we, so we're assuming that we want to do this in a way that doesn't disadvantage the citizens of the U.S.? Or you can, you can actually put forth something that is, this is, that is disadvantageous. I mean, I mean that may not necessarily so, be your outcome. But. So at the end of the day, right, what are these nations working toward with their industrial economies, right? What is sort of the goal? Is it like greater prosperity? Is it greater power in the international arena, right? I feel like to some extent, right, that's what you're looking at in a lot of these cases, particularly sort of the nationally driven economy like China, right? Um, and so I think, you know, to some extent, part of how you get people on board is to give them more of a seat at the table. Um, I do think that in terms of, and, and I mean, I think even in terms of you know, international climate initiatives that have happened, right? Wasn't China in the Paris Accord and we aren't? For sure. Yeah, right? Yeah. Like, so I feel like they're the not, intransigent... They're not, they're not in the Gang of Eight, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Right? Like, the, the, the nation... Which is insane. <laughs> the nation that's not coming to the table on climate change is the one we live in. Right. So I, I while I sort of loosely understand your question i'm not sure that it's relevant well let me let me push back a little on that because i think no matter what uh we do as the u.s we're only a part of the puzzle and we're an increasingly smaller part of the puzzle right we're more advanced than sort of where the technology stack is we're probably thanks to things that are somewhat an anathema of the uh, of the left things like um hydraulic uh oil extraction and uh, we are actually we are less and less carbon intensive in the way that we our economy runs um at least in terms of co2 emissions uh this is not true um with uh, places like china and india who um are going to continue to be increasingly um polluting uh increasing contributors to the issue of co2 emissions uh, so, and so but, but we don't, how do we we how, don't project that to occur indefinitely right that's a specific economic development phase, right? It, which I think, I, I mean, are they not, I, I don't know exactly where they are on the arc, right? But my understanding was that at least they are, if not reducing, at least they've stabilized in terms of increasing utilization. I could be wrong. I don't think either has stabilized. I think they've reduced their rate of contribution. Okay. Um, but I don't think they're close to stabilization. And it's very possible that as uh country like China moves into being a middle-income country, there's going to be more uh, demands on their energy load. So that's... I mean, yeah. I mean, per room of requirement general policy, the move would be to become increasingly globalized so that a single world <laughs> nation could address the issue at a 
global geopolitical level. I mean, I 100% agree with that. <laughs> I will point out, so I actually think that it is important to talk about uh, national environmental policy in the context of a global economy or in a global environment that you don't necessarily influence that well, right? And so you may, and there are enough actors out there to actually want to counter environmental policy. It may just be in their own interest uh, to fight against it, to continue to use coal because it's cheaper. And, but and, isn't that us right now? We are that actor, right? Right, but we're, we're one of them, right? And so uh, let's say we change our own policy, that doesn't necessarily guarantee that other people are changing their policies, right? So that's, I, I just, I wanted to put that on the table. So uh, let's, okay, so let's go to the politics. How do you look at the politics, Alexis? So, um, in terms of how I look at the politics of the Green New Deal, now I actually tend to say that relative to what I would consider to be the other potentially successful strategy for approaching this politically, the Green New Deal is the nice route, right? Because if we look at... As opposed to what? Well, if we were to consider, if we were to consider demographic cohorts and how right. they are advantaged or disadvantaged, disadvantaged by U.S. spending priorities, right? We overwhelmingly treat as secret, sacred cows the spending priorities that involve caring for those who are currently becoming elderly, while the projections around climate change, just by the fact that time is going by, necessarily automatically disadvantage um, people who are currently younger should ne negative outcomes be allowed to occur, right? And so uh, my question, if we wanted to become aggressive about how we're pushing climate policy would be, um, why are the lives of the old more important than the lives of the young? Um, and at what point does this kind of policy prescription or assumption uh, become an active and violent assault on the right to live in a functioning global society or national society um, that might reasonably be assumed to exist by people who are, I don't know, currently kids, young adults? Well, do you think... so? So I think that the Green New Deal is a nice, friendly approach that assumes that win-win is possible, um, and I'm in favor of it politically. Okay. So, do you, but your other approach, your other approach, do you think that would be politically efficacious? Do you think um, that? I mean, I think it would become increasingly politically efficacious over the next ten years. Okay. Well, your, your other approach would be like green revolution, like green genocide. <laughs> well. I mean, what? I mean, versus non-green genocide, right? right? I mean, versus, like, using the structure of American democracy to achieve ends. Well, you'd be using the structure of American democracy either way. It's just a question of which ends. Because so, so, are, let's, so let's assume, right. to begin with, that I'm assuming that everyone at this table acknowledges that climate change exists. Yeah. And yeah. that man has a role in creating it, and that its effects will be environmentally and economically destructive. Are we all on the same page about that? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Okay, all right. right. So, if we were to look over the next 10 years yeah. at what we project U.S. government spending to be, this is something that we've discussed well, before. Well, back up, though, back up, though. I, I will submit that that's always been true at every instance of human existence. So, I'm not going to say, I'll agree with you that, yes, that is true, but it's always true. Right. It's been true ever right. since but we so first what, decided what, to so, pin in cattle. So, what I'm saying is, let's reset the argument to a position where we don't assume that inertia is some kind of default, more valuable policy, right? So, like, if we assume that continuing to do what we've currently been done has no intrinsic value of its own, right? And then we just evaluate all policies in a vacuum on the basis of which cohorts they're substantially advantaging and disadvantaging, I think that you... Um, 
reach a potentially different set of conclusions, right? And I don't think that that's necessary, but I do think that in terms of fighting climate change policy, that's sort of de facto what both less lefty Democrats and the Republican Party in America are pushing, right? Okay. So let me follow that up then. So what, how politically do you think they should have maneuvered to make this actual policy then? It's like, where do, where do you think they failed? Okay, so um, in terms of getting the Green New Deal... Or some reason... So you're, I think you've made the argument that the Green New Deal is a way of staking out a position from which you compromise, if I... Yeah. Um, so to get to that compromise, what do you think that path would have uh, looked like? I mean, I think we're or doing do think it now. That's right. why I'm in favor. I think, I think like, this is the first meaningful progress we've seen in the direction of actual climate policy in a long time. Um, and so I don't think it's failed yet. I think it's the beginning of a gambit, right? I... So I think uh, I think the only person who will be able to pass anything in the Green New Deal is somebody who stakes out the claim that they're against it. And it's the only way you'll be able to convince people who have the opposite metaphysical opinion, which is the prevalent one, which is that nothing catastrophic is going to happen. Because anybody who's said that up until now in human history has been right. Anybody who's predicting the end of the world and the other person who says it's not going to happen, they've been right, right? So there's a meta... So they have a... The, weight of like metaphysical predictive power on their side not to say that they're not right now i don't think they are i think that person is actually the wrong person now but that's new so that person has to convince everybody out out there that the inertia is the thing we have to worry right so i think uh so i don't love the word metaphysics but like i think (laughs) well it is because it's not a uh, it's It's not not proven it's not it's 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 not we don't it's a prediction about the future right all predictions of the future are metaphysical claims they're not metaphysical claims. Well, they are because they don't have it empirically. You can't test them. I'm ready to the, moderate this debate. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, I would disagree. I just don't. I don't. I don't know that. But I, I think, Alexis, then how do you? But I think he brings up a good point: is that um, how do you? If even if you have uh, a sense that there is climate change, it is uh, uh, it has it will have deleterious effects on the environment, it's very, very hard to gauge with accuracy to what degree that is true. Yeah, future and projection should... is very hard right yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. Course, I mean, let's say it's the worst case scenario, right? Let's say by the year, you know, 2040, 2100, like the seas are boiling and, you know, the and all crops are dead, right? Unless we take action now. So I'm going to touch back on what you were saying earlier in terms of humanity as part of nature, right? And how sort of... Um, Not the... part of... Identical to. Identical to nature. (laughs) And I want to expand on that a little bit in terms of nature and the biosphere as a homeostatic system, right? So the way that sustainable systems operate is that they must have internal principles that bring them back into alignment within some range of allowable values. Now, that may be global average temperature year-round, or that may be some other particular parameter. But as part of this system, either we are in a positive feedback loop, which is going to end in some kind of positive feedback loop outcome, or we are part of a homeostatic system. Now the question is, what's the appropriate check and balance to bring us back into alignment? Now, if you are asking me whether anything should be done, Uh, I certainly think it should be. If you're asking me whether the Green New Deal goes too far or doesn't go far enough or should be approached differently or if there is some... I'm thinking politically. I'm thinking just on pure politics. People don't care. 
You can tell people that. But you that's can not, tell people that's not that. precisely that's not precisely true. Wow. Because people between the ages of eighteen and twenty four always care. Care quite a bit. Yes, they always care about this. They always care about their environment. When you get to a certain age, you start to identify with the death instinct, <laughs> and you become unable okay. to All be. Right. <laughs> okay, so I, I think there's there, there's a couple of things. So how uh, so politically, like how do you sell the idea? <laughs> no, 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 come on. I appreciate your patience. <laughs> I think I, I want to bring up the point. So politically, okay. let's assume. Uh, so how do you actually sell the idea of? Uh, uh, of apocalypse, right? And mm-hmm. I actually, and and to what degree is it oversold, right? So mm-hmm. I think yeah. there are there are two things. Like, do you preach apocalypse, which in itself it has certain religious connotations and moral judgment, or do you not preach an apocalypse? Because uh, preaching apocalypse also allows you to slightly move people mm-hmm. one way or another. So how do you move put forth uh, an idea so, that could be have scary outcomes if people don't love? looking at scary outcomes. What is an effective and seductive narrative is now our question, which is, you know, a good right. topic for this podcast, I think. Um, for me... And more specifically, is the Green New Deal this seductive and attractive? Well, um, I do think that um, the Green New Deal effective... Well, I don't know if it's effective, but what it's attempting to counter is a narrative whereby specific groups get left behind by the liberal agenda. And... I think that to some extent it is effective at that, at least, because for all that you can see, you know, um, there is what I think of when, and this is part of what I think is really interesting about watching both ends of the political spectrum in terms of how different news is received, right? Each side has its own version of an ideological immune system against ideas perpetuated by the other side. And if you watch how conservative media is responding to the Green New Deal, it's price tag, price tag, price tag. It's not doesn't care about rural America. It's not doesn't care about coal miners, right? So there are normal ideological attack points that are utilized by the right to counter the left that have been neutralized in the Green New Deal debate. Now, price tag is a hard question to answer because opportunity cost is a hard argument to sell. Right, and the price tag is also shorthand for this is a Trojan horse to advance other liberals. Like, climate change isn't real or it's not a catastrophe, and so this is a Trojan horse to advance other liberal agenda points Mm -hmm. by tying it to the environmental catastrophe that's coming, right? So this is a way to get universal health care and free education. Right, I mean, I think that's, I I think, actually, the the debate on that is that the uh, the left, as Alexis pointed out, is part of the Green New Deal proponents are trying to tie together a lot of concepts. Yeah. And the right is saying the left is trying to tie together a lot yeah. of concepts. Which they're, is they're true. <laughs> one sees it as a good thing, one yeah. sees it as a bad thing. Yeah, so I don't think it's it's a I don't think it's a disingenuous argument. Whoa. I don't think it's the right argument, but I think it is on the right they're saying, look, they're trying to tie in a lot of things that are are not Well, they're saying they're trying to get more money and then they're gonna use it however they want. Like, you may think they're going to use it on these, like, okay. jobs I mean, I programs. That's, that's, but. Uh, that's a, a rare argument. Sorry, but but, but I, 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 do think, I do think it is evidence that it's, like, for all, like, they're going to have an answer to everything because there's just, and the same applies, frankly, to when the right puts out policy ideas that actually probably are fine, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. um, 
They're going to have an answer to everything. So the question is, how intense is the answer? How valid is the answer? And which trigger points are activated in deploying the answer? Because that tells you a lot about the political strategy of what you're trying to advance. And I think that by that measure, the Green New Deal is doing okay. I don't think it's perfect. I'm not sure what the perfect answer would be. I'm still thinking about it. Um, but Well, I think the perfect answer is you pull the Green New Deal, see how it, it does as far as like, you know, do people like it? Do they want it at the top of the the agenda? And if it's down like 13, then you don't talk about it. And then you execute everything in the Green New Deal after talking about the thing that they like in order to get into power. That to me is what politics is, right? So, like, but that's, that's, but, I mean, that's the we might call of politics. we might call that the pre-existing condition. Well, I'm just saying, move, like, right? I'm just saying, like, like <laughs> if it doesn't, if it is, you know, like, uh, I don't think the Green New Deal is as or climate change in general is as apocalyptic to people as abortion. It is not winning as far as apocalypses go. Well, I certainly would agree with you, although I do think, and again, this touches back on what I was saying earlier about evaluating things in a vacuum. I do honestly think that there is an age cohort element to how apocalyptic exactly we consider climate change to be, particularly in light of frankly the fact that like there's been a lot more extreme weather events than we expected a lot earlier in the process of climate change right maybe that's right. A, maybe that's like a you know a bias in terms of how we're interpreting those events maybe not but i do think that it is impacting people's perception and i do think that the biases around whether we perceive the threat as real are reflected in age groups to some extent and i think that there is a real danger that there is a growing sentiment in the united states that different generations are actively in the process of doing not just hypothetical rhetorical violence to one another but actual political violence to one another and i think that that is escalating and we should probably deal with it on a win-win basis so i want to <laughs> i want to move towards uh winding this up a little but i did actually want to ask you both sort of a question, right? So I think Alexis brought this up, that we have a sense of ideological immunity that I think is what ideology is there for, to prevent us from thinking too much um, <laughs> or learning things um, So and make ourselves feel better. Um, but I, so I think that the right has a very uh, stubborn and, and dismissive way of thinking about climate proposals without actually addressing something that seems to be very uh, real. Um, and so it's easy to dismiss them. I think either talking about, as you mentioned, costs or, you know, they're taking away your hand, but are sort of ridiculous claims. Um, but I think also that the left has the, the opposite ideological immunity, that anything that is critical of even specific policies, mm -hmm. let's say cost, um, is somehow, uh, again, I think we take on, I think the environmental debate takes on somewhat religious terms, uh, like Miracle Jones pointed out. Like, I think it's, it's apostasy to talk about the environment critically, like this is a catastrophe coming, we should throw everything we should have in it. Are there ways that the left itself um, could do a better job in terms of prescribing policy? Not in terms of uh, politically, but what do you actually think are, are better policies that the, that the left could propose? Uh, because I mean, I think, is, are there things that the left gets wrong in terms of policy just because they don't know how to actually think about it critically because they're so used to staking out this ground that it's very important so we have to kind of defend yeah. this ground so we need you to come to us. Yeah, yeah, clean energy has the potential to be extremely profitable. That's it. That's the number one thing to say. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I like what Miracle Jones had to say. Um, you know, 
beyond that? It's an interesting question. Now, are we talking policy or messaging? Right, policy. I'm talking about policy. Yeah. I'm talking about policy. We can. I think we talked a little bit about messaging, but yeah, I'm talking about policy. Mm -hmm. So, what do you, what do you think that you're in general a fan of? How uh, even this new staked out policy? Like, I mean, you're you're pretty much a fan of that. But do you think that a free you, green generator for every rural? Home? <laughs> yeah. Interesting. All right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, honestly, that's my that's my first thought. Free well, green generator for every. Is that part of because you don't think that the environmental policies are pitched well enough or take into consideration because I think people America. value things that they use yeah well, I think people value things that they use I think people value things that they see sensory evidence of operating in their daily life and I think people like free things uh, the the French protest the the yellow vest or whatever that was rural uh, voters reacting to carbon taxes uh, that Macron was proposing uh, I yeah I also think who were, who were mad that they were that these new environmental policies would impact uh, rural voters more at the end. It was the urban ones that were creating the climate problems in the first place. Yeah. I also think that um, con rural conservative voters can be easily seduced by the idea that they are fucking over the liberals. And so if they get something that people in big liberal cities don't get in the first phase of a major climate policy initiative, I think that that will go a long way. I think that it would leverage cognitive dissonance. If I make you pick between a green and an orange M&M today, even if you didn't care about M&M color <laughs> yesterday, you're going to like the one that you picked more a week from now. That's been studied. Well, yeah. so so the, like <laughs> the, sooner, the sooner we can, like think about the job of electrician, right? Mm -hmm. It began as a the most like white collar job, you know, deadly like a like a fighter pilot, a deadly thing that only like you know, supremely intelligent, cutting edge people were working at, right? The Teslas and the Edisons, right? And now an electrician is a blue collar job, right? Like uh, the same, you have the same understanding of boards and how electricity works, and you know you can wire a home. Uh, that the, the sooner we can get from green energy to you know from white collar job to blue collar job, the more likely it will be that blue collar people support clean energy. And the way that that happens is by making it paying people, making it something that pays, making it profitable, and showing ways in which you know the jobs, the clean energy jobs, transform communities. Right? Not from a top down federal way, but from a you know okay. I work I work for my friend Earl. He's got a clean energy business and. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So let me ask you this, and I think this may be the last question. So how does, with that prescription, how does that not sort of retread the rather unsuccessful initiatives of the Obama administration? In particular, I'm thinking Van Jones is like yeah. green, whatever, a green jobs uh, yeah. initiative, which I think was in general sort of a failure. Now, it could have just been the politics of the time. Is that what we're describing? Or are there uh, fundamental sort of disconnects? And so I think that Hoping that environmental policy also delivers jobs seems very much in keeping with a with a, a certain outlook. But whether do we really think they could translate to one another? Or and if they if we do, then what happened originally? And because this is not a new idea, Obama yeah. really did try to push this. I yeah. think. Oh, I think this speaks to a weakness of the left in terms of communication style. I think that um, leftist politicians tend to want to be very aspirational and extremely abstract in their rhetoric, and it's actually counterproductive a lot of the time. I think that the more concrete you can get with the images that you are giving people to digest, the more evocative those images will often be. And that doesn't need to be just inspirational stories about diverse people that you talk about in a speech. It can be, look, 
in every town, we're going to need a clean generator installation guy, right? And like, here's what that looks like. Here's how long the training program for that would take. We anticipate it to be an X month training. Anyone could do it. It would be a job paying a rate of X dollars an hour. You get benefits and then everybody wins, right? I think that if you get down into the dirt and talk about the details so that people can visualize these things as part of their lives that provides them with benefit, like exactly like Miracle Jones was saying, right? In part, um, that that takes you a long way. Yeah, and it also doesn't, you know, you can be an electrician and still be an evangelical Christian, you know? Yeah. Whereas you don't have to buy the entire, you know, program of like, if I'm doing this to save the world, it's like, I'm doing this to earn a paycheck, and mm -hmm. if that ends up saving the world, then fuck, I fucked up, but <laughs> the liberals got me again, you know? <laughs> but like, I mean, you know, my, my favorite concrete example of a possibility is taking the the Rio Grande uh, that border and turning it into a clean energy corridor with desalinization plants and just you know like solar energy uh, it's a you know you get AMLO on board uh, you get you know Abbott Governor Abbott on board and you just start you know creating because it's a, a kind of a wasteland if something goes terribly wrong there it's not going to you know, it's going to hurt some desert, but it isn't going to, you know, it's not around people very much. And you can, you can experiment and, uh, uh, you know, not only would it be good for, you know, you'd be getting water uh, in addition to, to um, energy initiatives. And that's already happening, you know, with wind farms. Uh, but I'd like to see just, you know, that times a thousand and just all along there where, where jobs are needed and where tensions are high. You, you know, if, if it's such a crisis there, why not develop it as opposed to putting a wall there? Okay. All right. Well, uh, that's it from uh, my questions. Do you, either of you have any last <laughs> A robust discussion. So uh, I want to thank everyone for joining us. This has been episode 61 of Room of Requirement. Uh, and I have been Kamala Shroud, your moderator, and with me was... Uh, Miracle Jones. And Alexis Wright. <laughs> thanks, everyone, and thanks to Kevin Carter for thanks, producing our Thanks, Kevin Carter. Outro.